Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and my guest today is Simeon Mann, who is an assistant professor of history at UC San Diego. We'll discuss his book, Soldiering Through Empire, Race and the Making of the Decolonizing Pacific, which was published by the University of California Press in January 2018. Soldiering Through Empire focuses on the role of Asians who worked within the making of U.S. global power after 1945. Mann argues that the Cold War divide between communism and liberal democracy cast Asians into either bad or good, the bad being the communists in Viet Cong, and the good being military servicemen channeled into American war zones. Following the labor circuits of Asian military workers and soldiers as they navigated an emergent Pacific world, Mann reframes Asians as both U.S. citizens and as people from Asian countries like the Philippines, South Korea, and Taiwan. Doing so, Man writes, allows us to understand how U.S. empire took hold through a murky process of decolonization that on its surface sought to create an Asia for Asians, but also legitimated and obscured U.S. state violence. At the same time, Man traces other forms of decolonization by Asian soldiers who sought freedom and self-determination beyond the nation-state form and saw decolonizing projects as permanently suspended and incomplete. So it's a fascinating book, and we had our own reading group meetings over it here in Hong Kong, so I'm very excited to talk to the author about it. Uh, so with that, let's welcome Simeon to the podcast. Simeon, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so let's just get right into it. Why write a book about soldiers in the Vietnam War with all of the media and scholarship already out there? Uh, what did you want to contribute or say that's different from all of the kind of discourses about v- Vietnam that are popular? Well, so this book for me really began with the set of questions that I started to ask as an undergrad at the University of Washington. So I actually was not interested in military history, certainly was not interested in um, any particular way with writing a history of the Vietnam War. Um, But for me, this book was in a way um, started as an attempt to grapple with or to think about you know, growing up in Seattle, like the kinds of pervasive racism that I saw in Seattle beneath the veneer of liberalism and multiculturalism, right? So I still remember very vividly one particular moment when some of these questions started crystallizing for me. Um, I was riding in a bus going through downtown Seattle, and the bus drove past a group of elderly Filipino veterans, protesting outside of the federal building in downtown Seattle. And at the time, right, so these were maybe a group of 15, 20 elderly Filipino veterans, maybe 70 or 80 years old at the time. Um, I did not fully understand what they were protesting about, right? Mm -hmm. And it was only after, um, in graduate school, when I realized that they were protesting to have their rights restored, um, rights that were rescinded after their military service at the end of World War II, 
Um, but what struck me about that moment was these passengers on the bus that completely dismissed before they even knew what was going on. They just outright dismissed what they were protesting about. Right. So they said something to the effect of, I don't understand why they think they're any different from other veterans. Right. So you can kind of picture me being an, a naive undergrad who probably had just taken my first Asian American studies class, right? Like wanting to respond so badly, but also not knowing exactly how to respond because I also did not know what they were protesting about. So when I went to grad school, that was kind of the question. Those are some of the questions that I wanted to figure out, right? And I specifically, I was, I wanted to know, um, why have Asian American struggles for citizenship rights, for civil rights? Why have they been so historically dependent on one's demonstration of having served in the military? Right? So to me, there was something fundamentally kind of tragic about this episode of Filipino veterans um, having to demonstrate their rights to even have their rights restored right? by kind of performing a kind of martial patriotism by wearing their military uniforms. Um, And maybe more fundamentally, I wanted to ask this question of how do we make sense of this paradox, right, of Asian Americans having to fight on behalf of the nation, risking one's life for the nation, only to be included, right, just for... um, a sense of civic inclusion. So those were the questions that really led me to formulate my dissertation. And I had decided to focus on writing about the history of Asian Americans in the Vietnam War, right? After talking to my advisor, um, we kind of came away with the conclusion that actually not much scholarship has been written on this topic. Um, And specifically, I was interested in Um, kind of unpacking this notion of Asian American GIs having to um, fight an enemy who quote unquote look like them, right? So from some of the oral histories that I've come across, that was a common, um, common phrase or a common predicament that a lot of Asian American veterans reflected on. So that's how I came to focus on writing about this topic. Mm. And as you said, a lot of it came to ground uh, in graduate school uh, and t- over conversations with your advisor. And this was also, um, I mean, we were both at graduate school at the same time, both um, back and forth to Seattle. And I remember that context well, too, about being about inclusion kind of being the uh, the, the mode of every kind of p- political work um, mm-hmm. and then trying to kind of step back and critique it or step back and be able to visualize that kind of racism within a context that was so, so much about inclusion and identity. Uh, and at the same time, like your project does go a lot into war and, and soldiering. Um, and it was also written during a time uh, where the U S was and still is right, in multiple wars around the world. And I'm just curious how that, um, that context might've impacted your writing. Yeah. I mean, we're still, in an age of permanent war, right? The wars that have begun since World War II really haven't ended, right? So as the project kind of unfolded, 
um, I realized that what I was writing about was really the precursor or the beginning point, if you will, of this age of permanent war that we are constantly engaged in. And the the story you mentioned early um, about being on the bus, I feel like there's a mo- like you begin the book with a kind of a similar anecdote about um, two servicemen, Nick Nagatani and Mike Nakayama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I can't remember if you explain exactly why they were arrested, um, perhaps on drug charges, I think, but they are faced with this decision, right? Like, do you want to join the army or do you want to go to jail? Uh, and so the carceral is also kind of in the background, but can you just, um, I think this would be a good gateway into your book to tell us about these two servicemen, why you begin with their story and how this um, pushes us to kind of see beyond a kind of America centered frame for um, the Pacific. Right. So uh, Nick Nagatani and Mike Nakayama were two um, Asian American veterans who were some of the first people who I interviewed for this book. Um, And just to clarify, they weren't actually incarcerated or they never faced this question. Do you want to join the army or do you want to go to jail um, explicitly? Right. Mm -hmm. They were never in front of a courtroom. But this was the question that they knew many of their friends many of who they grew up with had to face, right? And they kind of saw it coming, um, the life that they were living, right, in Crenshaw, in Los Angeles. They um, kind of saw the military joining the Marines as a way of getting out of the bad environment. Their friends were dying from drug overdose. Um, Many of them were being incarcerated. So the military presented this seemingly safer option. an option for them to get out of a bad environment. But of course, little do they realize that the world that they entered was anything but a safer environment. They were kind of introduced to a whole new world um, of racialized violence, right, from the very first day that they stepped into boot camp. So that's something I can talk about more a little bit later, but... um, I should also say that the project, even though it really began for me as a history about Asian American veterans, which are a history of Asian Americans in the Vietnam War, which led me to interview many of these veterans, um, the project really transformed or the scope of it, right? The conceptual framework of the project really changed when I first went into the archives, right? So my first time going into the archives at uh, the National Archives in College Park, looking for Asian Americans in the military, right? And of course, I didn't find any um, anything about that. But what I did find was a group of Filipino doctors and nurses, mm. right, who went to South Vietnam in the mid 1950s, um, and they were working under the CIA. They were funded by the CIA. And their task was to go to these villages and to gain the trust of the Vietnamese population, right? of these Vietnamese refugees who had just migrated from the north to the south following the division of the country in 1954. Um, and their job was to administer medical aid, right? to teach them about public health and sanitation, um, and the way that the U.S. military talked about them was in these very racialized terms, right? So they called these Filipinos 
free Asians, right, or fellow Asians who can presumably demonstrate to the Vietnamese what it meant to embody freedom and liberal democracy within this moment of decolonization, right? So when I discovered Operation Brotherhood, that kind of led me down to a path of really thinking about the Vietnam War in a completely different lens, right, in, in a much bigger transnational and imperial framework, right, that accounted for all of these other groups of Asians who ultimately did take part in the war, right, in a war that still to this day, I think most Americans think of it as, as an American war, a, a war fought between the United States and the North Vietnamese, right, when in fact it was a much bigger war. And I feel like the that term that you use throughout the book, uh, the, de- the decolonizing Pacific, uh, is kind of is right, the framework through which um, those other relationships seem to become uh, visible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what you say is that it allows us to see Vietnam or the Vietnam War um, as a kind of globe-spanning. I think you use that word globe-spanning moment um, that mm-hmm. imbricates these multiple countries and groups within the Pacific. Um, right. But is also imagined as like where the U.S. is a necessary step towards decolonization, or the U.S. positions itself as necessary for these other countries to decolonize. Uh, right. And, and I mean, so can you just explain how I guess that moment where you found Operation Brotherhood kind of turned into uh, this this larger framework of the decolonizing Pacific? Yeah. So I came up with this term decolonizing Pacific as a way of um, kind of being a little bit more specific about what historians typically mean when they evoke the term the Cold War, right? So really what I'm talking about is this period um, of the Cold War, right, of the post-World War II decades. Um, But by calling it the decolonizing Pacific, I I want to um, be very clear that um, Right, this period in time um, was not simply an epic battle between the United States and the Soviet Union, right? But it really involved all of these different countries that were in the midst of decolonization when the United States enters right into the picture and militarizes these countries, right? So by the decolonizing Pacific, I I'm not really Um, What I mean by that term is not necessarily a fixed geographical construct, right, as much as a way of making sense of all of these different overlapping forces that really animated the U.S. empire after 1945, right? Um, And what I mean by that is I was really interested in asking this question, right? How is it that the United States after 1945, on the one hand, can proclaim itself as a champion of racial equality, of liberal democracy, right? As a champion of freedom in the decolonizing world. But at the same time, the United States during the same period is also expanding its military presence, right? Waging wars and state violence throughout the decolonizing world, right? How do we make sense of this seeming paradox? And my argument basically is that decolonization is not antithetical to the projects of U.S. empire, but it's actually intrinsic to it. So one key argument that I make in the book is the United States over and over again touts their support of an Asia for Asians, right? Um, 
kind of strangely borrowing on this language that the Japanese Empire had used during the war of the East Asia co-prosperity sphere, but using it as a way of justifying the integration of the region, right, making the region safe for global capitalism, and also justifying the deployment of different Asian groups for the Vietnam War. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the decolonizing Pacific is, right, it really was the United States' attempt to co-opt the language of liberation, of decolonization, right, for an imperial project. So that begs the question of what happens, right? Um, what happens to the dreams of liberation, to the dreams of anti-colonial liberation that was cut short, right, and violently curtailed by the United States. Um, so the other argument I make in the book is that um, a lot of the people who entered the military, right, or participated in the Vietnam War, um, those dreams of liberation did not end, right, but they actually became channeled elsewhere. And as a result of their participation in the war, they actually were able to interact with other anti-colonial peoples, right? people who are fighting against the U.S. military, whether it's on U.S. military base in Okinawa, in Hawaii, right? or in Vietnam. Um, by way of their participation in the military, they were actually able to forge these kinds of alliances that um, the U.S. military really did not anticipate. Right, when they recruited these people to fight. Yeah, one of the uh, there's several great keywords that you use, kind of in referencing to that. One is like soldiering, right? That we can see soldiering as um, as an optic, right, through which racial and, and imperial politics are then like forged. Um, but also that because you broaden out this idea of soldiering to not only servicemen but also to like the worker, affective laborers who are you know who come to the, the military bases or serve like, as you were saying with operation brotherhood for the CIA. Um, but that in opening up the term, you also, it's, it becomes really useful and I, very generative, I think, because um, it sees soldiering as a type of labor, um, but doesn't presume like the exact desires of why someone enlists, you know, and sees that enlistment process as, as very, as so complex. Um, right. And one that, like you say in the beginning of the book, operates through domestic ideas of like criminality, um, threats of incarceration, um, mm -hmm. and that I mean that that section meant a lot to me because I have uh, family members in Hawaii who are serving, um, and it's quite interesting because when they ca come back from a tour, uh, or I see on their Facebook feeds, right, that it almost feels like they're tourists <laughs> more than they are soldiers. <laughs> you know, I, I never see almost nothing about. Uh, what it's like in the everyday labor. It's almost all about the free time and, you know, the people they meet and uh, the airplanes and things like that and just how cool it is. And so it's, it almost, it, when I think of them, I, I never think of them as soldiers. It's just like soldiering is just their job, right? But they're like, you know, from Hawaii, it's, it, be, it can be very difficult, very hard to get off the islands, right? Uh, it can feel very isolating, uh, not a lot of opportunity. And so it's just, comes as a form of labor, right? A kind of everyday form of labor. Uh, and your book, you talk about this desire for like travel uh, and obtaining a kind of worldliness 
right? That would un mm. otherwise be unavailable. Uh, so can you talk a bit about that? How, how does this happen? Um, and your use of the word soldiering and how that kind of, um, allows you to, uh, take a broader view of, of these, uh, military personnel. Right. Yeah. So by coining this, not coining, but really thinking about soldiering as a form of labor, right? I am on the one hand, I'm trying to be specific about what the work of the military empire entails, right? Because oftentimes when scholars talk about the U.S. military empire after 1945, we, used to use, we tend to use phrases like empire of bases right? or archipelago of empire as a way of naming kind of the size and the scope, the expansiveness of the U.S. military, right? As though that tells the whole story of Right. How was the U.S. military empire able to maintain its presence throughout the decolonizing world? Right. So my use of the term soldiering is a way of kind of naming the different kinds of labors that were involved. Right. Both in terms of actually fighting. Right. But also a variety of kind of more affective um, intimate forms of labor, like the labor of winning hearts and minds, right? So the Filipino doctors and nurses who were deployed to South Vietnam, um, they were doing a kind of labor that was integral to U.S. counterinsurgency right, in the 1950s. Um, and my use of the term soldiering is also a way of encompassing all of these different subjects, as you mentioned, right? All of these different subjects who participated in the U.S. military who may not have been enlisted or drafted into the U.S. military directly, right? So the term soldier really encompasses, for example, um, the doctors and nurses of Operation Brotherhood, um, South Korean and Filipino soldiers and Marines who were a part of their own national armed forces, right? but who nonetheless, um, whose training was as a result of U.S. military presence in their own countries. Right? Um, so all of these different forms of, all of these different participants of the U.S. military, right? I understand them within this broader rubric of soldiering, right? And not all of them, entered the military, joined the military because of um, the desire to gain citizenship, right? So oftentimes, especially in Asian American history, right, when we think about Asian Americans in the military, we often think about um, the 442nd, right? The Japanese Americans who joined the military in World War II, the segregated uh, unit of the 442nd, the 100th Battalion, Right, as a way of demonstrating their capacity for citizenship, right, to demonstrate their ability to be an American citizen. Right? So a lot of these people who joined the military were not simply motivated by this desire for national inclusion. Right? They, were um, they were motivated by more material conditions, right? whether it's earning a steady wage right? or wanting to travel and see the world, right, put their, put the skills that they gained from U.S. colonial institutions, right, putting those skills to use. So all of these things really played a role in um, mobilizing these people to fight in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And as you said 
earlier, it has all these kind of unattended, unintended effects um, because it does kind of create that worldliness, right? And right. Um, and I think this is more when you get to, I guess, the beginnings of kind of Asian America, Asian American studies, in a sense that this, you know, we usually think of it as a very domestic affair, but actually mm-hmm. it, was, it was a third world consciousness, right? Kind of going around um, due to the Vietnam War and that, uh, and so can you say a bit about, you know, how this project um, contributes or uh, says something about Asian Americans, Asian American studies that um, might be revealing? Because as you say, uh, one of the nice points I like, and I think there's an in introduction where you talk about model minorities and how, you know, usually the, the line is that model minority stereotype is, or the myth is bad because it's untrue. Um and it constructs like this, this stereotype, right? But it's also bad because it, it relegates these wars to like the background, right? right. So that they just become the backdrop for uh, Asian American inclusion into the nation, whereas actually they were very um, crucial to kind of forming Asian American identity, right? And so uh, can you talk a bit about that? How, um, and this, I guess, we goes a bit deeper into your chapters too, but how this... Um, third world conscious consciousness, how Vietnam itself kind of becomes um, central to uh, movements in the United States. Right. So within Asian American studies or Asian American history, um, there's a tendency to think about this period, 1950s, 60s, 70s, right. As a period when Asian Americans are starting to, gain acceptance within the U.S. mainstream in a particular way, right? Um, when their rights are finally being um, reinstated, exclusion laws are being repealed, and all of this is happening against the backdrop of U.S. wars in Asia, right? Mm-hmm. So scholars have picked up on this idea of um, Cold War civil rights, right, which suggests that Asian American advances in civil rights struggles really occurred against this backdrop of the U.S. Cold War in Asia, right? That civil rights was really a foreign policy imperative. Mm. Um, So I see myself kind of contributing to this literature, right? But I also wanted to not simply think about U.S. wars in Asia, as forming a backdrop for Asian American civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think that war was a very important terrain where Asian American racial formation unfolds, right? So if we go back to the example of these Filipino doctors and nurses and the ways that they were racialized, right, in the process of being included into the military, Right, include, included into the functions of the CIA, um, they were touted as the embodiment of liberal democracy, right? a kind of model minority for the Vietnamese to emulate. Right? So part of my argument is that racial liberalism or racial inclusion right, doesn't actually or racial inclusion is historically dependent on U.S. state violence, right? That the two are, in fact, not 
antithetical to each other or one is not simply a backdrop for the other, right? but that these forces are mutually being formed simultaneously. Um, yeah, and I, I like that you that it's difficult to answer this question, right, uh, without thinking about the things like Operation Brotherhood because they they give such a uh, a different lens, I suppose, uh, in the way that like the decolonizing Pacific also kind of um, ex- helps explain things that seem so paradoxical from a domestic American point of view, right? Like um, you know that decision uh, to go to to join the military or to go to prison, right? It seems so paradoxical until you jump out into this other view and you're like, oh, this totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the chapter you, where you talk about the Operation Brotherhood, I think is my favorite chapter of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And it has one of my favorite lines. Uh, and so I, I kind of want to quote it, um, even though it's a bit big, but I think it's worth it. So you say, uh, and this is in the 1950s, right? The 19... Uh, or is before the Vietnam War, right? And the the, uh, the Filipino doctors, nurses, and veterans um, are traveling on routes shaped by, as you say, overlapping colonial histories and the imperatives of the U.S. military. And you say, quote, they emerged as agents of U.S. psychological warfare, tasked to gain the trust of the population by performing different kinds of intimacies, such as caring for the body and other convivial encounters. Uh, and then you talk about how this had to do with the CIA, um, and trying to aim or redirect state nationalisms towards kind of capitalism. And I was really blown away by this line that kind of seeing um, Filipinos going to Vietnam as kind of agents of psychological warfare uh, and is one like interesting lens upon it. Um, but at the same time, I think you talk about this later in the book, right? How uh, these same Filipino doctors and nurses and some of the servicemen once in Vietnam kind of realized that they looked kind of Vietnamese or that they, they had a kind of brownness um, Mm -hmm. that was also pushed upon them by the U S right. Seeing them as like Brown brothers of the Vietnamese, Mm -hmm. but then realizing they actually had a lot of things in common. Right. Uh, And then many of the Filipinos choosing to stay around Vietnam in Vietnam or, you know, marrying into Vietnamese families or things like that, or finding these kind of um, inter-Asian solidarities that, the U S was kind of pushing for in a very surface level way, but then didn't actually assume was going to happen. <laughs> uh, and so can you talk a bit about, about that? Cause every, all these movements that we're talking about also have their kind of counter movements, right? Where things right. just emerge, things happen <laughs> that the state is totally unprepared for. That's right. Um, so I see this, the U S projects, right. Of conscripting, of recruiting these Asian subjects into the military, right that there is, it kind of sows the seeds of its own unraveling in a way. So at every moment that the U.S. tries to incorporate some um, uh, particular Asians to, um, whether it's winning hearts and minds, right, or training um, training these Asian soldiers so that they can in turn um, help develop the armed forces of their own countries, right, all of these inevitably backfire in some way or another, um, so just to give you one example, um, in the throughout the 1950s, the U.S. military is deeply invested in training and developing the armed forces of different allied states like South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines. And as a result, they send a lot of these 
trainees to the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Training them on U.S. bases, kind of side by side with American soldiers and Marines um, in the 1950s. And what I found was a handful of them, right, particularly Taiwanese trainees, came to the United States and subsequently decided the military was not what they were, like they were not going to stay in the military, right? So they used the military, in effect, as a way of coming into the United States and then basically going AWOL and disappearing, right? And as a result, this once military trainee, um, military asset for the U.S. state suddenly became an immigration problem, right? Precisely at this moment when the United States is um, kind of deeply concerned about communists within the U.S., right? And the presence of Asians in the United States, right? The threat of Asians being um, kind of communist agents, right, during the 1950s. So that's just one example of the ways in which um, kind of the attempts to militarize Asia, right, to draw Asians into the military actually backfires. Um, And for Operation Brotherhood, one of the nurses who I actually interviewed, um, she also talked about the ways in which – for her, kind of the most lasting accomplishment of the whole endeavor was that she was able to put to use her nursing education, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately able to help these Vietnamese people, right? So she certainly downplayed the role of the CIA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she did not say anything about how, um, about the broader picture, right, of how the United States was entering South Vietnam. Um, She didn't say anything about the politics of anti-communism. But nonetheless, the way that I read this um, conversation with her was, this is the way that she is reflecting upon her, like, her role, right? Um, She did not see herself as an agent of U.S. imperialism, right? But um, I, I kind of read a an alternative understanding, like an alternative kind of colonial intimacy between Filipinos and South Vietnamese that kind of the U.S. military on the one hand facilitated, but also um, there was no way of them for them to control. I think the, uh, th- this kind of leads into your chapter about, uh, for me, about Hawaii mm-hmm. uh, and how all these, so many recruitment efforts were made not only in Hawaii, but how recruits were sent to Hawaii from all over the world and Hawaii becomes so, so deeply incorporated within the U S military and, and the Vietnam war. And so much to the extent that I th- you coined this term, I think it's uh, Hawaii's Vietnam war. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm mean, having, I think anyone who's lived there, right. This wouldn't come to any surprise. You know, there's, uh, you mentioned things like army war games, uh, civic celebrations. Um, but you also mentioned the whole built environment and that's kind of what it feels like for me. Right. That, so much of the the tourism and the the ways of negotiating space are about the bases and about um, the military, um, even to the point where like myths about Hawaiian warriors are then incorporated into like military strength. Um, mm-hmm. Can you exp- uh, talk a bit about this part of your book and how Hawaii kind of sticks out as one of the kind of unseen nodes in the Vietnam War? 
Yeah, so Hawaii, as you mentioned, was heavily militarized by the time um, the Vietnam War was in high gear, right? So the thing that I found really interesting about Hawaii during this period was, on the one hand, it was experiencing um, this moment of being included into the U.S. nation, right, mm-hmm. as the 50th state, right? So in 1959, Hawaii becomes um, incorporated as a state, and it's being celebrated as this quintessential symbol of American racial liberalism, right? Hawaii is seen as a bridge between the East and the West in the kind of Cold War framing, this Cold War civil rights framing. Um, And the question of violence, of colonial violence, is completely erased from this picture, right? So what I found was that the buildup for the war in Vietnam actually entailed kind of transforming the landscape of Hawaii into basically an an army training camp, right? Mm -hmm. That mimicked the jungles of Southeast Asia, right? So a little Vietnamese village was constructed in the middle of Oahu and native Hawaiians, along with Asian American GIs, they would play the role of the Viet Cong in these simulated war games. Um, And what I found really fascinating was that the troops who trained um, in 1967 in one of these mock villages in Oahu would go on to um, commit the My Lai Massacre in 1968, right? So that was something that was really shocking for me, right? But it also, for me, really highlighted the underlying intrinsic violence of racial liberalism, right? On the surface, Hawaii is seen as this multiracial melting pot, but um, the links between Hawaii and Vietnam that was really encapsulated in the space of the army training camp, right, really highlights that racial liberalism and state violence are not easily uh, disentangled. Mm -hmm. So the, I think that the, we've hit upon a lot of the sites that you look at and just reading throughout your book, like it's a very generative book because of these terms and because of the broadening that you do. Uh, with the Vietnam War. And so I immediately thought of places like Japan as also being one that, um, I guess, de-imperializing would probably be a better way to think about Japan, but uh, also as one that kind of was then incorporated into American empire um, and where the U.S. absolutely inserted itself as like, you need us in order to um, become competitive with the world, you know, to be forgiven by the world and all of these things. And there's so many other different sites. And I think... In the introduction, you talk about how uh, you're hoping to kind of open up these these terms to other things. And so, you know, if I was like a student studying, um, looking for a project or something, trying to use a lot of your work, uh, what other directions might you see these terms going in, like decolonizing Pacific, soldiering? Like, are there other things that you've, other contexts or other um, stages that you've seen that you could speculate your, your work might be uh, uh, impactful? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think, right. So part of the broader push that I'm trying to do with this book is to bridge across different disciplines, right. And then thinking about the decolonizing Pacific, I'm deliberately trying to think about 
um, how different regions, right, different parts of the of the region are linked in some ways, right, in ways that otherwise might get missed if we just focus solely on Cold War area studies framings, right? So part of the broader push of the project is really to think about Asian American studies and Asian studies, right, and what kind of productive um, dialogue can emerge from kind of bringing these two fields into conversation. Um, so for me, I think that's that's always been one of the broader conceptual challenges of this book, to think about how is this project simultaneously an Asian American studies project that's also talking about all of these different subjects who often gets left out of the narrative. And for me, I think, um, like I, I, I see these fields as being in conversation and um, the boundaries between Asian American and Asian, right, as being very porous. Right? If that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I feel like the thinking about it as a, as transforming a lot of area studies projects uh, makes a lot of sense because, um, I mean, there are risks. There are things that I guess area studies people might see as, as risks. Um, you know, talking about multiple countries in one chapter would probably just seem odd to, to some area studies scholars, right? Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of um, uh, the framing of the book, I think, is really useful and, and opens up a lot of these connections that um, disciplines have trained people to kind of, uh, you know, put on visors uh, for. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us for, for the podcast. Uh, do you mind uh, ending by sharing any new research you've been working on? You know, what's next for, for you? Yeah, so I am kind of in the process of thinking about the next project, right? And in many ways, this is a continuation of where I left off in the book. So in the conclusion of the book, I kind of gestured towards the 1980s as being this insurgent movement, right, where um, democracy movements in the Philippines and South Korea are blossoming and emerging. Um, sovereignty movements in the Pacific are also on the rise in the early 1980s, right? So my next project, um, yet to be set in stone, but I'm starting to explore this particular moment in history, right? Thinking about how these movements for decolonization, um, people's democracy movements in Asia are influencing um, kind of Asian American immigrant radicalism in the 1980s. Um, and also thinking about the Pacific as a site where um, the decolonizing Pacific really is a continuing story, right? So decolonizing um, decolonization in Asia throughout the 1950s and 60s, I think, really occurred on the backs of or was dependent on the ongoing militarization and colonization of particular uh, Pacific islands. Right? So what what is happening during this period in which Pacific Islanders um, in Micronesia, in the South Pacific, are politicizing around um the issue of indigenous sovereignty and environmental justice, right? How do we make sense of this particular moment? So that's where I'm 
temporarily. That's that's where the next project is taking me. That's fascinating. Yeah, and that that does kind of answer the question too of another context that's kind of there in the book, but um, limited by just the length of of a, of a manuscript. Right. Thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to my interview with Simeon Mann on his book, Soldiering Through Empire, Race and the Making of the Decolonizing Pacific. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. Thanks.